So I'd like to warn you up front before I begin my sermon today. <laughs> I always like to give warnings ahead of my sermons, you know. It really helps you like, what is he going to say, you know. Um, but basically for this one, I, there's not going to be any simple or easy answers for this sermon this week. It's not going to be very tidy or neatly packaged. You know, sometimes I have a sermon where it's like the point is abundantly clear and it's so simple and so practical and you can take it home with you, you know. Uh, last week, in a way, was that, you know, like, let's stop saying not today and actually focus on now, you know, and what God is calling us to. Uh, today is a bit more complex, you know, and it's because the text that we have for this week is a bit complicated. Um, our text is pretty confusing. I would say it's very provoking, and it's been heavily debated uh, throughout history. It's one of those texts uh, that preachers rarely choose to preach, um, yet... We've been following the, the Revised Common Lectionary for the past two and a half years, and, and it has brought us here, and so I'm going to preach on it, and I'm excited about it. Um, so I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to raise some ideas and thoughts I have and some paths that I've kind of taken in my own interpretation of this passage, but just know that there's many other ways to read it, and, and I encourage you all to dig in yourselves. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles just to be ready, we're going to get into it in just a moment, but it is... Luke chapter 16, um, and we'll get there in just a, a little bit. So, you know, they say in America that you shouldn't really, you should avoid uh, talking about money and politics and religion. Those are things you shouldn't really talk about. Um, I was, Laura had her 20-year uh, high school reunion uh, last night, and so we went to the reunion, and uh, I actually talked about all these things with people, so I'm not very good at this either, you know. Uh, I think they enjoyed it, but... I just found one person, and we just got deep, you know, because I, I didn't know any of those people there at the party, but uh, it, it was fun. But, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't abide by that rule, and, and these are kind of rules that our culture has, that these are things you shouldn't get into. And, and some people, I've told you this before, but the most pushback I ever get uh, with sermons is if there's anything that people think is mildly political, you know, and they're like, no, we don't do that in church, and and I just like, Jesus talked about things that impacted kind of the way we live our lives and structure our communities. He talked about issues of kind of systemic injustice and ways that like economics and things play into the way people uh, live their lives and who's thriving and who's not. And, and these are things we need to talk about in church um, because they're important. And Jesus talks about all this stuff in the Gospels and including our parable for today. You know, Jesus' parables that he told, these stories that he would often tell, and he would teach in parables on a regular basis. And they often deal uh, with everyday issues. And the passage today really deals with economics. Um, Dustin's geeking out about that because he loves economics. Uh, but they deal with economics, kind of debt systems, um, debt relief, which has been kind of a hotly debated thing recently. Um, deals with kind of scheming and under-the-table stuff. It deals with where our allegiance lies. This parable itself uh, that Jesus told is actually quite difficult to understand. Um, I, my dad was sharing a book with me on the parables. This guy, uh, I think his name's Snodgrass is his last name, a unique name. But he wrote that book, and, and, he, and he looked at this parable, all the parables, and it's so comprehensive. But on this one, he gave a survey of all the interpretations out there, and there were 13 of them by scholars, smart people, you know. And I'm like, 13 different ways to read this parable? This is kind of overwhelming. Um, I have read personally probably up to 10 different ones, and, but, but really, that shouldn't be something to scare us away from the Bible. Because parables are really, that's how they're meant to work. They aren't meant to give easy answers. 
They're meant to provoke us, to challenge us, to push us, to think and consider and to ask questions for ourselves. There are these like mysterious and often cryptic stories uh, that have layers of meaning. And, and really, if you think about it, any good story, any good poem, any good piece of art, that's the way that it works, right? There's not just one way to look at it. I like to go to art museums when I travel uh, to different cities throughout the world and, and like to find kind of their main one. And it's interesting when you go in, anyone can look at a piece of art and kind of get something different from, a, from it and be inspired and challenged in a different way. My wife participates in a book club, and every few weeks they read a book together. And when they come together, I, I, I've never been to any of them, but when they come together to discuss the book, I am pretty confident that each person in the room is getting something different out of the story because that's what a good story does. They challenge us to consider, to think, to wonder. That's what the kids are doing upstairs. They're wondering. They're being told stories and wondering about where God may be in the midst of this. Parables can be frustrating, though, for people like us, uh, our modern kind of Western minds. We like certainty. We like answers. We like clarity. We like directions. Uh, We like things to be tightly packaged, right? But that's not what the parables do for us. They're not going to give us any of that. They invite us to wonder and to think and to imagine and to consider how we might live our lives differently. And so like I said, the parable for today is it's not super straightforward, but I do believe it can inspire us to continue on in our journey of following Jesus. And so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and I'm going to read it kind of slow uh, so you can see the words and process them as I'm going through it. And then you all, there's Bibles in your pews that are a different translation, but that could be helpful to look at that also. So chapter 16 of Luke, it's the uh, third book in the New Testament. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, folks who owed the master money. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Cut it in half. The manager uh, then asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So right at the beginning of this story, uh, we read, there was a rich man. And I will tell you uh, that we know right off the bat that we're dealing with money and we're dealing with power. There are two stories in Luke chapter 16, all right, just in this one chapter that begin with the exact same phrase, there was a rich man. So these stories in Luke's mind, I, there's really no way to argue it, they're, they're connected to one another. He's telling these two stories back to back for a reason. We're going to deal with one of them this week, and then we're going to deal with the next one uh, this coming Sunday, so, so get ready for that. Um, one thing we need to know is that Jesus tells other stories about rich men and Luke, and the rich man is not portrayed in a positive way in any of the stories, so get ready for it. So the main character in the story, though, is not the rich man, but the main character in the story is, is this guy, this manager. Now, you can think of the manager kind of like mid-level management if you're thinking of a company. And so the rich man may be like the CEO or the owner of the company. And then the manager is kind of like a mid-level person, has some power, but ultimately is there to do the wishes of the person in charge. So the boss, his boss, was extremely wealthy. All right, just thinking about looking at the numbers and the amount of things he was loaning out to people, this person had a lot of resources, a lot of wealth. He was loaning out money and goods and land to people all across the village. Now, in the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus, owning land was very important. It was primarily an agrarian society. People farmed, and if you farm, you need land to farm, right? And so some powerful people uh, were very cunning and knew that if they could take the land, if they could have the land, then they could control the economy and therefore have incredible power. And just like today, you know, they schemed and did what they needed to do, and so through massive land grabs, most of the land in ancient Palestine came under the control of a few great households. The majority of the common kind of everyday folks uh, were forced to enter into working relationships with these great households, in order to survive, because they had to live somehow. And if you don't have land, you can't farm, you can't provide for yourself, so you've got to work with these people who have the power. And so they became indebted to these powerful families and, and really had no opportunity for upward mobility, and they had no choice but to do this. They had to survive. This was kind of that patron-client relationship we've talked about sometimes. This is kind of how the economy and the society worked. You had these great patrons that had lots of resources, and then you had to enter into relationships with them to make it. So the middle manager is unique because he's kind of like on the side of the, the boss. Like he's, he's connected to him, living on his property. Um, but he's also kind of, he, he's in a weird role. He's kind of in the middle. He was tasked with going out and collecting debt payments and serving kind of as a middleman between the owner and the owner's clients. Those everyday people who didn't own their land. Now, the manager was told that he was going to lose his job, um, and, and I don't know if you've ever been laid off or fired. It's a very, like, uh, anxiety-producing thing in this society. Like, you know, if he lost his job with the boss, he's probably thinking, like, 
people probably don't like me very much because I'm, like, collecting debt payments and stuff. I'm, like, charged to go out and, like, get the interest payments and all these things. Nobody's going to like me. If he doesn't like me anymore either, where am I going to go? How am I going to live? And he says, you know, like, I'm kind of too weak to dig and to do manual labor, but I'm too proud to beg. If I got fired, I'd probably think the same thing, right? I don't know what I'm going to do. And so he's trying to scheme and figure out what he's going to do next. And we don't know why he was fired, but perhaps he wasn't bringing in enough money for the boss. We don't know. But he was terrified. And so in desperation, he devises a plan. And, And his plan is to ingratiate himself to his clients, like to get them on his side. He knew he would need their help after he was fired. He wouldn't have anywhere to live, right? And so he went to the clients and he told them that he was going to reduce their debts that they owed to the master. So they'd be excited about this. Some people he reduced 50% off. That's a huge deal, right? Uh, Some of y'all with these student loan forgiveness, maybe half of your debt was forgiven and you're like, this is amazing, right? It feels good. He reduced their debt like 20 to 50% of the amount owed. He figured they would be grateful for this and that they would take him in once his boss kicked him out of his home. To me, this sounds like a good plan, right? Because it would be difficult to survive without the support of the master or his friends to help him out. And so his boss found out about what he did. And Jesus says, as he tells the story, that the master commended the manager. And we're not sure exactly why, but he was impressed by this plan. And people debate over and over what was going on here. Why was the master happy with this? Um, We don't know, but Jesus says that he was impressed that the manager acted shrewdly. Shrewd is not uh, in my vocabulary usually, so I had to kind of look it up, but it's really to be wise, it's to be cunning, it's to be crafty, it's kind of the street smarts that people have. A shrewd person kind of knows how to work the system to get what they need. And I say, honestly, it was very shrewd. This guy had a good plan. I mean, think about it. The clients would have been very happy. Um, that part of their debt was forgiven. They would have been grateful for the manager, but they would have been probably even more grateful to the boss because they knew it was the boss's money. They'd be like, man, this boss is, this guy's awesome. He's forgiving a lot of my debt. It would have made the boss look really good. In an honor-shame culture, you know, people like to look good. And so the boss would have kind of had to go along with this plan because he would have looked generous and kind, and then he would have looked like a fool if he went back on what the manager did because he was the one who tasked the manager to do this anyway. And so it kind of worked out, and and the boss was probably in a bind and kind of had to go along with forgiving those debts. And so the manager, this mid-level manager, likely came out of the situation looking okay. He probably made some new friends with these clients who owed the boss money, and the boss probably let him get away with it in order to save face with his many clients. This is certainly uh, an interesting story. I mean, right, it's an interesting plan. He kind of got out of something Uh, a problem he was in. It's an interesting story about a crafty manager who cons his boss out of money and is able to start new uh, with new friends after getting fired. But, you know, Jesus didn't just, like, tell interesting stories. His parables, they had deeper meaning. They're meant to do more than just, like, be a fun story to hear. They're meant to impact the way that we live. He's telling these stories for a reason. His parables are meant to communicate deeper and important truths about life and God. But like this story, it seems a little bit too messy. Because often in a story, you can pick out who the good, the good person is in the story. Like who are we supposed to follow? Who are we supposed to imitate? 
And in this story, it's a little bit hard to know, right? Some of Jesus' parables, there's clearly like a, a good person in the story. But in this story, I wonder who is the good guy? Because the rich man certainly isn't the good guy. You know, the, the, the Jews in the, in the early, uh, in the first century, would have, they would have seen this guy kind of like what we talk about the 1%, right? He was building wealth, a massive amounts of debt on the backs of, of mostly poor people. And, and no everyday Jew is going to be like, that's the good guy in the story, right? He was loaning out money, probably charging interest, uh, high interest rates was a common practice. And, and you may not know this, that's actually against Jewish law in the Old Testament to charge interest. No everyday first century Jew would look kindly on the rich man in the story. But the manager, he's also complicated, right? I mean, he did forgive their debt, which is like pretty cool, uh, I mean, that's a good thing, but it wasn't really his money in the first place. And then, like, his motive for forgiving the debt was not really pure uh, because he did it to benefit himself and to get him out of trouble. So that's not, like, honorable or noble. And he was also kind of dishonest, right? Like, he was not really telling the boss what he was doing, and he was going and kind of changing up the contracts and everything. And, and I wonder, like, could Jesus really be using this guy? as an example for us to follow. But then I thought about it, and I'm like, man, every single person in the Bible except Jesus was very complicated and messy. They did some good, but they also did some really kind of shady kind of stuff. We're all complicated people here, right? We're a mix of darkness and light, just like this manager. So perhaps we can connect even more to this character in the story. And I find it refreshing that Jesus told a story about an imperfect person with mixed motives um, and used this person as an example for us. And I'll tell you, Jesus doesn't commend his dishonesty. He doesn't say, go be dishonest like this manager. He doesn't say, go be really selfish and do things for your own gain like this manager. But Jesus does bring to, to light and, and honor his shrewdness, his cunning, his wisdom, his street smarts, his ability to bring something good out of a messy circumstance. And honestly, I think more followers of Jesus uh, need this kind of shrewdness because we live in a messed up world, don't we? And if we're going to be about the kingdom of God in this messed up kingdom that we're living in now, we're going to need to be smart. We're going to need to be crafty. We're going to need to be shrewd. So I think that's one level of how we can gain some insight. But even on a deeper level, to me as I've read lots of different interpretations of this story, I think this parable appears to be a story about a man kind of finding his way out of this exploitative system and switching his loyalty from the oppressive owner to the everyday debtors. This man worked for a boss who likely took care of him, but also at the same time expected him to engage in unjust practices of taking advantage of working people. This was commonplace and rampant all throughout ancient Palestine. Yet the manager found a way out, leaving the rich man stunned and the working people freed of debt. You know, these kind of stories make wealthy Americans uncomfortable um, because, uh, you know, we don't like to be challenged. And we don't like people to talk about our possessions and what we have and how we use what we have. And perhaps this is one reason there are so many interpretations of this story. Because people, uh, myself included, I like to read the Bible in a way that doesn't challenge me sometimes. 
And so we got a lot of people who interpret Scripture in ways that spiritualize things when we talk about money. It's not really about money. It's not really about economics. It's about your heart. Or, or maybe it's about both. Maybe it's about both. Jesus was clear in His teaching and His example on, on a lot of these issues. He was clear about what He thought about powerful, wealthy people taking advantage of the poor. In Luke chapter 4, we've talked about this over and over. This is probably one of the most important sections of Scripture in the whole Gospel of Luke, and you have to interpret the whole Gospel through Luke 4. Jesus goes into the synagogue in His hometown. He stands up, picks up the scroll, and what does He read? He reads from Isaiah and he reads this passage about the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim sight for the blind and, and all the different things. And one thing he says is that I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now another way to describe this is the year of Jubilee is what Jesus was talking about here. This was an ancient practice in, in Jewish uh, culture. It was woven into their law in the Old Testament. No one's sure if they ever actually practiced it or not, but they should have if they did not. But every 50 years, the year of Jubilee would come. And it was a massive debt cancellation for people all across the nation. It was a way to start over. People who had been paralyzed by the crippling nature of debt could be set free. That probably sounds good to some of us in the room, doesn't it? This is in their law, right? And Jesus came proclaiming cancellation of debt. We also find in Luke the theme of radical reversal. This is prominent all throughout Luke. We see it everywhere. Jesus, what did He say in the Beatitudes in Luke? He said, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. In Mary's song in Luke 2, Mary's Magnificat that people call it. You should go back and read it, but Mary prophesies about a lot of stuff. And she says that the poor are being filled and lifted up and the rich are being sent away empty and brought low. It's radical reversal. We also see in Luke Jesus condemning the oppressive practices of wealthy and powerful people who are oppressing others. And this parable is just another example. Perhaps Jesus told this story to inspire His listeners to challenge his listeners to break free of the worldly economies of selfish gain and exploitation and inequality and begin living in the kingdom of God, which is an economy of friendship, of mutual aid, of sharing, of solidarity. In verse 9, he says something peculiar. He says, Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, this is a peculiar statement. You may read it differently than I do. But the way I read it is that Jesus is calling us to use this worldly wealth. Other translations say dishonest wealth. This worldly wealth, use it not to build up ourselves, but use it for the sake of others. You know, wealth is incredibly dangerous. And, and we like to ignore that and, and just continue to amass as much as we see fit. And, and it, it can corrupt us. It can change us. It can lead us to be very selfish and prideful and indulgent and power-hungry. And we've seen the effects of that all across our world from the beginning of time. Wealth has a way of destroying relationships, of disting us from others, of shielding us from the suffering of other people. Worldly economies, um, including right here in America, are often sustained by competition, overconsumption, exploitation, and inequality. In the economy of the kingdom of God, 
It's about working together. It's about the common good. It's about sharing and mutual aid and compassion and support and equity. Very, very different. I went to school, a school in Florida, side note, but they taught us that capitalism and the free market was a gift from God and it was God's economy that was given to us. And some of the fundamental tenets of this is competition. It's about overconsumption. It's materialism. And these are things that run counter to what Jesus taught us and the way we ought to interact and, and structure ourselves in community together. And you see the early church, what did they do? They started trying to live this out. They didn't get it right all the time. But they started pooling resources and sharing and coming together. It was about relationships. It wasn't about pursuing power and wealth here on earth. So while we wait and while we live on this earth waiting for Jesus to return, to, to a large degree, we have to deal in worldly economies that are inherently flawed. But I believe Jesus is challenging us to use that worldly wealth to do good, to benefit the common good, to, to focus on relationships. And this is where the manager's example kind of comes up short, right? Because the manager canceled debts expecting something in return. He wanted them to take him in. But Jesus taught in other places that we give without any expectation of getting anything in return. And this was a big deal then, and it's a big deal now, that you give and you do for others without any expectation of something in return. And as noble as we think we are, we often want something in return, whether that's affirmation, whether that be friendship, whether that be patting you on your back and saying, I love you, you know, we want something often. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to give to others without any expectation of something in return. And I believe that's what Jesus means when he's telling us to use worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves. Use this dishonest money that's all tainted to bless others, to bring people close, to show compassion, to build connections, not to build up ourselves or our desires or our power. My friend Jesus, who is running Neighbors Immigration Clinic, he talks about practicing financial solidarity with those who are suffering and struggling. And often, you know, we need to give our bodies, we need to give our, re our time and those things, but often we need to just give our financial solidarity and be willing to th throw our resources at causes and movements that are working on behalf of people who are suffering. In the remaining uh, verses, Jesus continues to emphasize his point in many different ways, and I'm not going to break all of them down. Uh, you can go read them again. But the passage ends when he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And this is one that people often don't like to read or talk about. Because uh, this is very straightforward, actually. A lot of it was confusing, but you can't get around this one. This one's very, very straightforward. You cannot serve both God and money. And frankly, uh, mostly the American church has worked out a deal uh, where we're like, well, you can't actually serve both God and money. And, and we've worked out a deal and said, oh, no, y'all can come to my church and you can serve both. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, but Jesus, I think, would have a problem with that. The word for money is a word called mammon in the Greek. And mammon is not a, a word we use often, but it's really a personification of wealth. And it's really more about the exploitative economic systems of domination and inequality. It's not just about money. It's about the whole system that favors some over others and puts people in bad situations. This is the kind of stuff the prophets were always yelling about. The prophets were fiery prophets yelling, you're oppressing people. You're, you're withholding wages. You're doing this. You're doing it. You're hurting others. This is what mammon is talking about. We see the mammon system 
at work today all across our world. Our economic systems are basically built to benefit a few on the backs of the masses. And this is not what the kingdom of God is all about. The mammon system, our worldly economy, it's going to vanish at one point, but not until Jesus returns and it's all finished. But in the meantime, we must be mindful of where our allegiance lies. While we operate in this unjust system of competition and greed and materialism, we actually can live differently. We don't have to be slaves to the mammon system. We can live differently through sharing, through canceling debts, to giving without any expectation of getting back, through generosity, through financial and relational solidarity, through prioritizing people over profit. Ched Myers, one of my favorite biblical scholars, argues that the manager in the story is a good model for middle-class Christians in America. I fit into this category, and I can say that I often benefit from these systems that were built by people more powerful than me, but I benefit from it, and often these systems aren't very just. And I need to do all I can. We need to do all we can to break free of this system that is hurting so many people. And in this sense, we must live counterculturally. We have to think about redistribution. I believe that is a Christian idea, that we redistribute wealth and resources so that people have enough, so that no one is crippled by debt, so that people have access to the things that lead to life and flourishing. 